Amen. Thanks, Greg. And amen to that song that we sung uh, right before Greg came up. I love the words of, those song, of that song. And um, church is not a spectator sport. We all need to engage from the beginning to the end. Um, even if you're listening, it's not a passive dynamic. We need to actively engage with and expect that God is here to meet with us, to speak to us, and to change us, um, all of us, me included. So, amen. Send your spirit forth in power. Come and bless your church this hour. We confess our thoughts have strayed, minds distracted and dismayed. On the sun, fix now each thought. Help us worship as we ought. I could repeat the whole song, um, but may the Lord answer the prayer that we prayed as we sung that song together. So uh, some of you may be familiar with these two church names, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area. So let me read at least one of these Wikipedia entries. Mars Hill Church was a Christian megachurch, past tense, sadly, founded in 1996 by Mark Driscoll, Leif Moy, and Mike Gunn. It was a multi-site church based in Seattle, Washington, and grew from a home Bible study to 15 locations in four U.S. states. In addition to services offered at its 15 locations, the church also podcasts content of weekend services, of conferences on the internet with more than 260,000 sermon views online every week. In 2013, Mars Hill had a membership of about 6,500, an average weekly attendance of over 12,000. Following controversy in 2014 involving founding pastor Mark Driscoll, attendance dropped to 8,000 to 9,000 per week. At the end of September 2014, an investigation by the church elders found bullying and patterns of persistent simple behavior by Driscoll. The church elders crafted a restoration plan to help Driscoll and save the church. Instead, Driscoll declined the restoration plan and resigned. On October 31st, 2014, lead pastor Dave Bruscus announced plans to dissolve the church's 13 remaining campuses into autonomous entities with the option of continuing, merging with other congregations or disbanding, effective January 1st, 2015. The Mars Hill Network dissolved on January 1st, 2015. in a matter of 20 years, meteoric rise and just a shocking, you know, kind of destruction, crash and burn. Similar situation with Willow Creek, if you um, know anything about that situation. So you can imagine it's a mixed bag. God used Mars Hill. Um, a lot of people came to faith, a lot of lives changed, but there's also been a lot of pain and wreckage and you know, a lot of disillusioned people because of what happened there. So there's a warning. Beware looking good and impressive, but harboring sin and abuse. There's also an encouragement here, actually. As much as, you know, you can imagine if you were involved in one of those churches and everything starts to collapse and you see the impact that it has on people's lives where people start to question their faith because they see how, you know, things were not as they seemed. You could think, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? 
Why have you let this happen? But there's an encouragement that Jesus will eventually deal with the corruption. I mean, that's either a threat, hopefully it's not a threat to any of us, or it's an encouragement. And the point of Jesus dealing with corruption is so that he can seed and grow healthy fruit. So we actually see all those dynamics in our text this morning when we see the Lord Jesus at work doing it all. So we're going to look at Mark 11, verses 1 to 25. So we're studying through the book of Mark because you don't need my opinions, right? Week to week. Um, I'm just going to come and go. I'm just dust. We need the eternal, inerrant, authoritative, powerful word of God week in and week out. And you don't need my hobby horses, right? Just rock my favorite passages, you know, week after week. No, we are committed to exposition here because we want the word of God to set the agenda. And as we just go from one section to the next, God is speaking to us And you know what? Some passages we might think, oh, what's in there? That's dry or boring or whatever. And we just need to press in and let all of God's word shape us over time. Old New Testaments. Um, So we're walking through Mark like this. So chapter 11, verses 1 to 25 is our passage for this morning. And we'll begin by looking at the first 11 verses under the heading, the triumphal entry. And it's actually a question if you see the bullet point there the triumphal entry (laughs) let's see why now when they drew near to Jerusalem Jesus has set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to his death and his disciples are following and they don't totally understand his mission at this point and they're afraid when he drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives Jesus sent two of his disciples And said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So in these... We'll look at verse 11 here in just a minute. Um, In these verses, as Jesus is heading in, we're seeing some things that sound like the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament messianic prophecy, that this king was going to come and set everything to rights. So Zechariah 9.9 is happening The king is coming. He's riding on an unridden, previously unridden colt, and people are responding with rejoicing. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. So it was typical for pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, coming up the hill to Jerusalem at, at festival times, whether it's tabernacles or Passover or whatever, they would sing the Hallel Psalms, okay? Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, they would be used at the time of these festivals in Jerusalem. And just so that we understand what Hosanna means and all of this, let me quote um, a commentator named William Lane. He summarizes things well here. He says, Hosanna is properly a prayer invoking God, God's saving action. Literally means save us. But through liturgical use, it came to be dissociated from its original meaning and could be used as a shout of acclamation, like hallelujah, or as a greeting in addressing pilgrims or a famous rabbi. In Psalm 118.26, one of those Hillel Psalms, a blessing is pronounced upon the pilgrims who have come up to the festival, and this is perhaps the normal way to understand verse 9. Blessed is in the name of the Lord be he who comes. It formed part of a customary form of religious greeting. Yet, the formulation is ambiguous and Mark may well have intended his readers to detect a deeper messianic significance in the phrase, he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this would be typical for people to say this, but it's now being directed at Jesus who's riding on the colt of a donkey. It sounds like Zechariah is taking place, Zechariah 9.9. So Psalm 118 Zechariah 9.9 coming together and Jesus then enters Jerusalem. You'd think that this would be triumphant. I mean, he's the king. He's showing up in the city of the king, right? The son of David. He enters Jerusalem, went into the temple and he looks around at everything and it was late. So he goes out to Bethany with the 12. <laughs> like, wait, What's going on here? Seems so anticlimactic. I mean, the, the temple is so impressive and alive, and he looks around and leaves. Like, what is going on? What's the point of him looking around at everything and then withdrawing? You know, so this is typically called the triumphal entry, right? Doesn't seem so triumphant, does it? Well, in a sense, it really isn't. Even though Jesus is the king. Now is not the time for him to be crowned. Instead, it's the time for him to be crucified. I mean, crowned in a sense, ironically, the crown of thorns. So in a sense, he will be coronated on the cross, but this is in a way that they totally did not expect that he would be coronated. So this looking around, what, is that just kind of like a throwaway detail? The king is looking around. He's inspecting the temple. Why do we know that's the case? Well, what is he going to come back and do? He's going to come back and cleanse the temple, right? So he is inspecting the temple. There's actually a strong um, theme of divine inspection before judgment in the Old Testament. Okay, so remember when... Um, Babel took place. How did, how did God speak about his judgment at Babel? I'm going to come down and see. Okay, so that's anthropomorphic language. It's not like God's like, what's going down? I need to get closer so that I can understand what's going on. No, he's coming down to inspect and then to judge. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, same thing happened. 
But it's not just the divine inspection to judgment theme. There's also another text. You scratch the New Testament text, there's Old Testament text underneath. And Malachi 3 is underneath this passage. There's a lot of Old Testament background in this section. We're not going to look at it all, but um, we do need to look at a couple of select passages. So Malachi 3 should be up here, I think. Um, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a fuller's fire, he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. So inspection, the Lord's going to come to his temple. He's coming and he's going to judge. So is the temple's purpose being fulfilled? The answer is obviously no. Jesus as the king comes and inspects things and he's going to have to deal with what he sees there which leads us to the next point why curse the tree verses 12 to 14 look at it with me there on the following day when they came from Bethany Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. <laughs> Anybody bothered by that? <laughs> Seems cruel, doesn't it? Gratuitous. Why destroy this innocent tree? I mean, innocent. Jesus is hungry. The tree has no fruit. He blasts the tree with a curse. I mean, that's bad enough, but... It's not the season for figs? Like, why curse the tree for not bearing fruit when it's not even the time for figs? So a couple of the commentators that I read actually quoted this guy named T.W. Manson, apparently some English biblical scholar from the early 20th century, who wrote this of this section. Um, he obviously had a problem with this passage. He, he says, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. He couldn't believe it. So when you run into stuff like this, what do you do? Oh, that's weird. I got to find something that I can actually highlight and take away with me. So let's move on, right? No, we should actually press in. This is like a little sign lighting up that says, dig deeper. Listen, Jesus did not just fall off the Palestinian apple cart, okay? He knew that figs were not in season. Fig trees can be seen in leaf at the end. Just track with me here for a second. At the end of March, beginning of April, okay, 
Only early green figs could be expected at this time when this is happening. But they're not ordinarily eaten. They don't taste that great. So figs don't usually ripen until June. What Jesus is doing is he's using this situation to make a prophetic pronouncement. Okay, the point is that the tree, though it looks good from a distance, he saw it in leaf, and then he comes and upon closer inspection, it's bearing no fruit. It's barren. It's fruitless. And so the line for it was not the season for figs, is actually more than just an agricultural explanation. It's an allusion to Micah chapter 7. Okay? Again, you've got to track with me here. I know this is a lot of Old Testament background and details. But, but this is where when we talk about um, you know, stories in our culture or history, we can make a reference. Like, I'm not a crook. You know, like, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe. Maybe you don't. Um, there's all this history behind that. And I just did this one little thing, and it brings you back to a certain point in history. Jesus is making an illusion, and you're supposed to think about Micah 7. So let's look at Micah 7. Woe is me, the prophet says, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes that have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. That's the metaphor. What does it mean? The godly has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bride. The great man utters the evil desire. In other words, there's no righteousness. No one is righteous, not even one. So that helps us understand why the next thing Jesus does is upend tables in the temple. If you zoom out and notice the context on either side of the cursing of the fig tree, you see that we have, we've seen this a couple times, a Markin sandwich. There's one thing here, another thing here. These two things are similar. And then there's something in between. So there is, he comes to the temple. He's going to cleanse the temple. And then there's the parable of the fig tree in between. Do you see? So he comes to inspect it. He's going to enter and confront the corruption. And in between, he gives the parable of the fig tree. It's a living, it's an enacted parable. So the temple looked so impressive and vital and alive, just like that tree did from a distance. But looks can be deceiving, just like the fig tree in leaf, though it was barren. So appearance and reality or true condition can be two different things. Fig tree looked good, it was barren. Old Covenant Judaism at the time, centered in Jerusalem, in the temple, despite all the busyness, despite all the activity, despite the impressive temple, was actually dead and barren. So this is a living, enacted parable. Just like the healing of the blind man in two steps, remember? Why did Jesus do that? He touches his eyes and what do you see? Well, people are like trees walking. And then he heals him fully. Well, in the context, the disciples see, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. 
but they don't see because they think Jesus is a political military liberator. You know, he's gonna free them from the Romans and he needs them to understand and see that he came to die for the sins of his people, not just throw off Roman oppression. So that living parable of the healing, two-step healing, is a picture of what needs to happen with the disciples. So um, this actually is reinforced if you look ahead to chapter 12, verse 2, which um, actually Chris is going to handle in a few weeks. Um, There is another parable, and it talks about the season. So Mark 12, 2 says, real quick here, um, you know, there's this man that planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So it's reinforcing this point here. So bottom line is the temple is unfruitful. It's barren. It looks impressive, alive on the outside, but it's not producing what it's intended to produce. I mean, just like the Pharisees who were whitewashed tombs but hid the deadness within. You remember John the Baptist? When he came on the scene, Matthew 3, you brood of vipers <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're fine. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's the true situation. Jesus inspects it, and he's going to swing that axe at the root, which leads to point number three. And another question, is this the cleansing of the temple? It's typically what we call it, verses 15 to 18. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. Remember Malachi 3, the Lord will come suddenly to the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7 is actually underneath that. We're not going to look at it, but you can write that down and look at it on your own. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So we need to just get into the kind of the mindset of a first century Jew, we need to remember that the temple was like absolutely central to Judaism. It was venerated. It was central to religious life, to national identity. There's a lot of pride wrapped up in it. It was also quite the spectacle, okay? So just to give you a sense of the size of Herod's temple, the court of the Gentiles, which is where this is happening, was the outermost court, Okay, mainly on the south side of the temple complex. And it was something like 35 acres in size. Okay, and then you had, you had the court of the women and the court of the men and the court of the priests and the holy of holies. And, but all around here was the court of the Gentiles. Okay, so 
Also, we should just kind of realize what, what would happen in this place, especially at the times of festivals and, and feasts, okay? So Josephus was a historian of the time, and he says that in A.D. 66, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed that year for Passover. Can you imagine the scene? What kind of environment is that going to create if all those lambs are sold in the court of the Gentiles? I mean, I think we could probably picture something like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, but just only add animals. I mean, that's just nuts and chaos. Think of all the stalls that would have been installed. Think of the sounds and the smells. It was more like a bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R, than a house of worship, right? I mean, have you ever been, anybody seen or been in a bazaar in the Middle East or in India? Big market where all kinds of things are sold. I mean, you have those movies where they're flying through with a motorcycle or whatever and, you know, that kind of scene without the motorcycles, obviously. So how is that supposed to be an environment that is a house of prayer for all the nations? Isaiah 56, 6 says this, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, to Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. A little bit more background here, William Lane makes this important point. On the Mount of Olives, which was considered a part of the temple precincts for ritual purposes, there were four markets where pilgrims could buy doves and other ritually pure objects of sacrifice for temple offerings. Although it's commonly assumed that the commercial use of the court of the Gentiles was a practice of long standing, there's actually no evidence that traffic in ritually pure items took place in the temple prior to A.D. 30. The existence of the four markets on the Mount of Olives is presumptive evidence that the transaction of business and sacrificial objects inside the temple was not an established institution, but an exceptional and shocking license introduced by Caiaphas 40 years before the, for the destruction of the temple. The presence of certified markets on the Mount of Olives nullified any argument in support of the use of the court of Gentiles for similar purposes. In other words, they didn't need to be here. Caiaphas did it, and it became a moneymaker. The purpose of the temple was being displaced. So what is Jesus doing? What's he communicating in responding this way and upending tables and all of that? This is a direct challenge, not just, you know, the corruption of the traders who are trying to make a buck and maybe the upcharge of, of offering their wares here. This is a direct challenge to the authority of those who had authorized those merchants and money changers in the first place. Who's the Lord of the temple? Who's in charge? Who has the authority? Just like the Lord of the Sabbath earlier on in Mark can say what can and can't be done on the Sabbath, 
and there was a clash of authority, right? Jesus with the religious leaders. The Lord of the temple determines what can and can't be done within its confines. And here's the one who's come to determine if it's fulfilling its divinely ordained purposes. And here's what we need to see. Jesus didn't come simply to reform the temple. He's not just cleaning it up. He's not trying to improve the temple operations. He's not merely cleansing it of exploitation. Hey, you need to charge less for those animals. He's not simply seeking to remedy the abuses in the system. He didn't come to just clean up the temple. He came to replace it. Jesus is the temple. He is the meeting place. What is the temple? It's the meeting place between God and sinful humanity. Remember that passage that Greg read? It's all provisional. It's all like a shadow. It's all a sign. Blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. There needs to be a mediator of a new and better covenant. And this new covenant that Jesus came to accomplish is a covenant not just for the Jews, but for people from every tribe and people and nation. Because God's house, God's presence, it's for all the nations. So actually, the popular expectation of the time, according to one of the writings of the Jews, was that the Messiah would come and clear the temple of all the Gentiles. But instead, Jesus is clearing it for them. He's going to die for them, for us, for all peoples, a ransom for many, like it says in chapter 10 that we looked at recently, to make atonement for our sins and bring us into reconciled new covenant relationship with God through his work on the cross. So remember, we sung about it, the climax in Mark of the tearing of the temple from the top, the tearing of the veil from the top to the bottom that closed off the holy of holies, the very presence of God from the people. Only the priests once a year could go in there and make atonement. That's what Jesus came to do, not just to clean up the temple, but to replace it. So, I, mean, I don't think we really feel the weight of, of this. It's easy to know about the holy of holies. It's easy to know about the sacrificial system. But listen, go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled. And in a sense, God was as well. He couldn't dwell with man in the same way because of sin. He's holy, we're not. How could God dwell with sinful people without destroying us? You know, Isaiah gets in the presence of God in Isaiah 6, and he's probably the holiest man in his generation, and he feels like he's coming apart at the seams. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. I mean, the clothing that God made for Adam and Eve was a hint, but that flaming sword that barred their way back into the garden and to the tree of life, how are you going to get past that? Nobody could survive that sword. I mean, imagine if you woke up in a world, I mean, you could probably think of it in, you know, like a movie-type sense, and you had to get past this super powerful being who wielded this fiery sword, and it was the only way to survive. 
I mean, you could be Tom Cruise of Mission Impossible, you could be any Avenger, you know, and you have no chance. And certainly not if you're just ordinary like you and me. So how in the world can we unholy people dwell at peace in the presence of God and not be destroyed? The tabernacle and the temple provided a way, but only because an animal went under the sword in your place. There's a lot of blood. And the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. It's all provisional. It's all temporary. But there was one who came and went under the sword for us. And in so doing, he most certainly did die, but he made a way for the rest of us to make it past the sword. It was the death of death in the death of Christ. The veil torn in two from top to bottom. And now, amazingly, we can approach the throne of grace. It's the throne of grace for us unholy sinners. It's a throne of grace. If you are trusting in Jesus, it's a throne of grace. Chris opened with it from Hebrews chapter four. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of our great high priest. And we can expect to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need because the Lord Jesus made atonement for our sins. We can come directly to God in the name of Jesus and receive grace and mercy to help us in our need. Which leads us to point number four, withered roots and bearing fruit. Look at the last several verses here, beginning in verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them. <laughs> now, how, what would you expect Jesus to say at this point? This is actually a really kind of tough passage to understand why Jesus goes where he does. He says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, which is proverbial for doing the impossible, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So whatever is getting in the way of us bearing fruit, God can remove that obstacle. We need to trust him. Because again, this is in the context of this temple, this old covenant system is dead and barren. It's not going to produce the kind of fruit that God desires. So Jesus is going to curse it and he's going to cause the new covenant to be ratified, to be accomplished. So Whatever gets in the way to us actually bearing fruit, to living real lives of spiritual vitality and fruitfulness, God can remove that obstacle and we can trust him for it. Therefore, I tell you, he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So this is following on the language of, you know, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And now, prayer is happening among the disciples, the community of the disciples. So it's moving from the temple 
to the people. The focus of prayer, the, the place of prayer is not just at the temple, it's actually among the disciples. This obviously is not a blank check. It wasn't for Jesus. If there's any way that it's possible that this cup could pass, yet not my will but yours be done. Instead, I think the focus is wisely um, noted by William Lane when he says, when prayer is the source of faith and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. So the sovereignty of God is both the scope of possibility, but also its only restriction. So all things are possible with God, and God is God, so he's not gonna say yes to every little thing that we ask for because he knows infinitely better than we do what we need. But we should never downplay his ability to do the impossible in and through us. And so Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So how about that for a mountain that needs to be moved to bear fruit? Have you been sinned against? Isn't it easy to just let that bitterness like simmer in your soul and corrode your soul? Like if you are bitter and unwilling to forgive, it will eat away at your soul and steal your fruitfulness. How do you move that mountain? But once that mountain is moved, the way is cleared for you to bear fruit for God. So Judaism looked good on the outside, but on the inside, it was dead and lifeless. The axe was laid at the root of the old covenant tree, and Jesus declared, may no one eat fruit from you again. But he didn't do that because he was spiteful and vengeful. He declared it so because it was hopeless. And he was bringing the hope of new life and fruitfulness, not just for Israel, but for all the nations. So his people needed to be able to, they needed new roots to bear new fruit. So in a sense, this passage is pointing us to John 15, which happens to be the text that Mike Osborne's gonna preach next Sunday. So, if we're not reconnected to Jesus and abiding in Jesus, apart from him, we can do nothing. But connected to him, we can bear much fruit. That is the point of what Jesus is saying here. So there's the same dynamic. Let's just bring this full circle with where we started. Whether it's the temple or whether it's Mars Hill or whatever, same dynamic is a danger for us today. There is such a thing as looking good on the outside, but covering up some real unhealthiness on the inside. There is such a thing as hollow religiosity. There is such a thing as veneer Christianity. Again, looking good on the outside, but inside lifeless and fruitless. It can happen to individuals like you and me, it can happen to churches. It can even happen to denominations. May that not be the case with us. May it not be true that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
and their worship is in vain. Like if that's where any of us are right now, individually, let's like repent and run to Jesus right now. There is nothing that can get in the way. Jesus can move any mountain, any obstacle out of the way. The new covenant power for change comes to us through Jesus by the Spirit. We have a new heart. The law is not written on stone out here. It's written on our hearts and, as Chris said, on our minds. So he intends to change us from the inside out, and he can So when we are united with Christ, the true vine, we abide in him, we begin to bear much fruit. We are now the temple of the Lord. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, right? So there was the temple and Jesus condemned that temple. It's obsolete and he was the temple, the meeting place of God and man so that we could become the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us individually as believers and dwelling in us corporately as his people, his family. We don't have to travel to Mecca or Jerusalem because the presence of God is not out there in some sacred place. It's in here, in his people, empowering us from the inside out to live new lives. By the Holy Spirit, we bear the Spirit's fruit, joy, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We can forgive. Where is the power to do that? That can feel like a mountain. I've already mentioned this, but listen. Do you see, when you abide in Christ, the one who paid your infinite debt, you can forgive because you've first been forgiven. You've been forgiven 10,000 talents, an inestimable amount. How can you withhold forgiveness when someone sins against you the 100 denarii worth? Matthew 18. We don't have to go to a sacred building to pray. The temple was actually destroyed in 70 AD, and there's no need to rebuild it. We have a temple. It's Jesus And we are now the temple, the community of disciples, the church. We are actually being built into a house of prayer for all the nations. We're being built into a holy temple, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to curse the temple and take the curse to make us the temple. He was the temple to make us the temple. So let's worship. Let's bear the fruit of abiding in the vine and being filled and empowered by the Spirit. So we're going to sing His Mercy is More here in just a minute. The musicians want to come up. This is actually the power to change. This is how we bear fruit. We love because he first loved us. We can serve because he first served us. 
We, we were even considering this this past Wednesday in prayer meeting, hadn't thought about it until somebody mentioned it in prayer meeting. We can intercede. We can pray for other people and it actually be helpful and, and it you know, affects change by God's grace because Christ first intercede, interceded for us and he intercedes at the Father's right hand. And we can forgive because he first forgave us. We can be patient. You see how the gospel, the new covenant grace that Jesus died to win is what's going to produce the fruit in our lives and through us. So let's pray and sing. Lord, we thank you that despite our deadness, naturally we are dead in our trespasses and sins, totally cut off from you and unable to save ourselves, to atone for our sin, to worship you in a way that is acceptable and to bear fruit that um, will last. We thank you that by the power of the gospel, Jesus replaced the temple. Thank you that that is true and we can now have power to bear fruit and to live lives that are vital and alive and flourishing and that feed and bless and serve and help and encourage others. So Lord, where we need to be cleansed, where we need to be purified, where we need to be confronted, where there's deadness, where there's lifelessness, where it's just a, a facade or a veneer, please convict us. Lord, if, if there's any in that situation and they've never really come to Christ, would you draw them in right now to real, vital, living relationship with you as their Savior? For those who maybe have drifted and just slowly gotten dull and lifeless and dead and they're still going through the motions and they're busy and whatever but they're kind of hollowed out would you please slow them down and stop them in their tracks right now and cause them to be honest with themselves and with you and run to you for mercy and grace to help in their need. That there would be new life and fruit. Would you revive your people again? That we may rejoice in and bear fruit um, by the power of the gospel, by the power of your spirit. So Lord, you know what we need. Please give it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.